as we went through autumn this year, as December has approached and progressed, I've been receiving an ever-growing number of comments about something else that has been growing. My beard length. Asking, was it in some way related to a jolly chap that is known for wearing a red suit at this time of year? Am I to take a lead role on the 24th? Am I deputising for Father Christmas? The answer I have repeatedly given is no. I will be playing a role on the 24th. At the crib service, I'll, I'll dress up as a shepherd, as I usually do. But these questions about um, Father Christmas, about Santa Claus, has led me to look at the life of Nicholas, the 4th century Bishop of Myra, He's probably best known for the tale of dropping gold coins through the window of a poor family, thereby saving the three daughters from not just destitution, but probably prostitution. However, there is another tale, more controversial, more disputed about St. Nicholas. The story goes that at the Council of Nicaea in 325, Nicholas got so frustrated and annoyed that he slapped or maybe even punched an Arian priest who was making the heretical claim that the Son of God had not always been in existence, but at some point before the creation of the world had himself been made by God the Father. And this would deny the fullness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit being one at the beginning, now and forever. The slap was not a punishment. It wasn't the start of a fist fight. It was to try and make the priest come to his senses try to wake him up to the reality of who Christ is. Which is interesting because we, we normally think of St. Nicholas doing things while we're asleep, don't we? He knows when we're sleeping and he knows when we're awake. Well, he wanted to wake up the priest And you might want to wake others up too. However, I highly recommend that you don't go around slapping people. Or you'll end up having a night in the cells. Which actually some claim is what happened to the bishop. Our passage today does not have a punch up. It speaks instead of peace coming to all who please God. 
But it does more than that. It speaks to the humanity and divinity of Jesus. It wakes up the shepherds to who Jesus, this new baby, is. It wakes us up too, I hope, and lets us see something of what is important to God. So the first thing we might notice is that the passage begins with the powerful presence of the Romans. Caesar Augustus is over a thousand miles from the Holy Land, even in a straight line across the Mediterranean. But his word brings a census. The king speaks and things happen. People have to move. They leave their village. They journey many miles. Even for people that are going through turmoil, people that are struggling with what is going on in their life, they have to leave their home and travel. And for Mary, this would be an arduous task. We know that she is pregnant. And we know that that journey with Joseph is not a journey that, uh, on foot or on donkey, not that there's a donkey mentioned in the nativity story. It would take days, not hours. But under the oppressive king's regime, under the word of the emperor, Mary and Joseph journey to Bethlehem. And here we get the second point. Joseph is of David's royal line. We heard of the power of the Romans, but our mind is drawn now to a greater kingship, a direct one of God's people. And maybe we think of how David was called, how he was anointed, how he came to the throne. It was certainly in the beginning a humble kingship, a youngest son from the family of Jess, one that might be overlooked. One that might have been out in the fields when the other brothers were, oh, no, you're not the one that's going to be king. One who was young and small, unable to wear the king's armor when he took on the mighty Goliath. One who leads battles against foreign invaders. One that brings the reconciliation of Israel and Judah that brings God's people together as one before they enter Jerusalem and take it, completing the promised land. How different this is from Caesar Augustus. True kingship challenges oppression rather than introducing it. And then from the thought of kingship, to the thought of a baby. From power to fragility. An infant born 
A firstborn child, a son wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger. At this time of birth, it is a, a place where there's no gold or frankincense or myrrh. The, the Magi won't appear for a few years yet. But the birthplace is not a palace. It's not even a guest room. Somewhere more like an outhouse, a stable or a buyer. The nature and simplicity being expressed in the presence of a feeding trough to be used as the baby's crib. Two or three weeks ago, when Danny and I were planning last week's nativity service, we started trying out some of the crafts that we had in mind. And uh, we, we, we made the baby Jesus that some of you would have made last week. Taking a, a sports sock and putting stuffing into it, fluffy white stuff that was soft. And, and we ended up with our, our baby Jesus. And when we made it, I, I, I nestled it on my arm. You know, and it suddenly, uh, their head against the elbow, body finishing about the hands. It, it made me think of when I first held my own small, helpless son. He might not look quite so much small and helpless now, now that he's 13, but I remember that laying along the arm. I remember dressing him the first time, putting his first clothes on him, and being terrified I would hurt a finger, that I would bend it back or, or, or do something that might cause some damage. And any of you who have held a newborn baby, a very young child, just a day or two old, maybe just a few hours, maybe just a few minutes or even seconds old, we'll know something of that fragility. How small. How helpless. But that concept of small and size kind of fades as the years go on and they grow bigger. But Jesus in this passage, the son of God in this story, is a tiny human child. But not simply in King David's line, but in the earth, he is the king of kings. And whereas Caesar would order families some distance away to, to move and they would move, Jesus would in his time order the wind and the sea to be still. He would command authority over 
nature. And so we, we move into the second half of the passage. The first half of the passage has all been about humanity. About the abuse of power that we sometimes have. About the frailty of infants. About the poverty that dwells with so many in the world. It's about how people live. But now with the shepherds we must turn our eyes heavenwards. The angel appears before them. And this is now about God. Here to the lowest workers. In the darkest of night. A message from the Lord. I bring you. You. Good news. Great joy for all. The people. A saviour born to you. It's directed at these poor shepherds, but it's a message for us all. Whoever we are, wherever we come from, whatever we've done in our lives, however grotty our existence, this is good news for us. It is something that can give us great joy. It is a hope, a saviour for our lives. God cares about our situation. And he wants us to know and share in his love. And so the promises spoken long ago by prophets had come true. A Christ, a Messiah had been born. Messiah, Christ, Lord, Saviour, words that the angel says, are words written in the scriptures. And they're the words of the nativity. Not simply a birth of a boy, but of God coming in the flesh to save his people from their sins. You may have seen in the media this week about a school nativity play in Chingford, East London, where in the name of inclusiveness, the head teacher changed the words of a way in a manger. So that no longer did it say, Lord Jesus, but baby Jesus. The school also changed the words of come and join the celebration from there's a new king born today to there's a baby born today. Angels don't announce the birth of every baby. It's as if the first part of this passage had been read, but not the second. The humanity is there, but not the divinity, and Jesus is fully both. Were he not fully human, he couldn't live our common life on earth knowing what it is to be tempted, to grieve, to suffer pain. If he were not fully divine, he would not have achieved his great victory on the cross. Uh, 
The challenge for us is whether in our lives we actually deny the divinity. We might still sing the words of the song, but is that really where our heart and our mind is? Does Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem and who took the cross to Calvary, receive the honor and the glory that he so rightly deserves? Do we put this king of kings as king of our life? Do we put him first? Do we reveal his love to the world with our word and action? Thinking of the poverty of that situation and how we respond as God did. Or do we simply share the greetings of Christmas in an almost ritualistic way, saying Merry, Merry Christmas as we pass the gift on? but forget that the true gift is for us and for others. The gift that was laid in the manger, the gift that takes away our sins when we believe, repent, and choose to follow him. It's vital that we do follow. We have to remember that Father Christmas is not the only one with a naughty and a nice list. And I don't mean me. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man returns, and he will return, he will sort all people like a shepherd sorts his sheep and goats. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. And those times when you've not been good, remember that he forgives and offers new life. May you honor him this Christmas and each day. Amen.